0: We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 26 to the end of the chapter, we're going to only read uh, maybe the first uh, five verses of that passage, but where we are in the book of Hebrews uh, is another stark warning uh, that this, this letter, this book lays out for us. Uh, remember, uh, just uh, of the warnings, there's, uh, we've looked at the idea of drifting from the Word of God, chapter 2. We've looked at deadening our heart or hardening our heart to the Word of God in chapter 3. We've uh, looked at the idea of becoming dull towards the Word, uh, chapters 5 and 6. And today we're going to look at us discarding the Word, kind of receiving the truth and just kind of tossing it aside. But you could say even beyond that, it's not just discarding the Word, but it's discarding Jesus and uh, and then uh, later as in our study, we're going to get to the fifth warning uh, there. But today, we're going to be looking at that fourth one, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26, uh, just as a way of expressing our submission to the Word of God. Would you stand with me? For if we go on sinning deliberately... God, uh, would you take your word, one that is not popular in our culture, and if we're really honest at times, is not popular in our own hearts. And so, Father, I pray that you would take it, that you would have us hear it as you've intended, that you, that you would reveal yourself through this. Father, I pray that you would convict us where it's needed. God, draw us more and more uh, towards you uh, in the midst of this. Father, I pray that we would Uh, have our hope set on you and your grace and your mercy alone. So, Father, I pray that your word would speak with power and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I may be seated. So you may remember uh, the the theologian, kind of modern theologian, R.C. Sproul. He recently went to uh, be with the Lord. Uh, He was telling the story one day of uh, when he first began teaching Uh, a freshman class of college students and there was about 250 students in this college freshman class and he carefully explained on the first day of school that there was three term papers due One uh, on the last day of September, the last day of October, and the last day of November were these three papers. They were due. There was, was, you know, no extensions unless you were in the hospital. There's no uh, possibility of turning this in late. And so the end of September comes and the first... uh, The first paper's due, and 225 of the 250 250 students turn their paper in, and the other 25 are kind of shaking in fear, wondering what's going to happen. And they, they say, you know, we're so sorry, we didn't make the proper adjustments from high school to college, uh, we promised to do better next time, and uh, Sproul says, you know, that he you know, heard that, he bowed to their pleas for mercy, uh, he gave them an extension, but warned them not to be late next time. So the next month comes, October comes, and uh, this time, 200 of the 250 students turn in their paper on time, and 50 show up without their paper, and oh, please, you know, Dr. Sproul, uh, it was homecoming weekend, there was a lot going on, we ran out of time, uh, and Sproul, again, showed mercy. He said, this is it, no more excuses, Uh, next time you're going to get an F. So November rolls around, and uh, of the 250 kids, only 100 show up with their paper. And 150 are coming and asking uh, for mercy or just telling, you know what, we'll get this in soon. To which he responded, I'm sorry, it's late now, you get an F. To which the 150 exploded, that's not fair. And he turned to them and he said, if you want fairness then okay, here's what I'll do. You get an F for every paper you turned in late because that was the rule and that would be fair. It's interesting. We want mercy and we want mercy and we demand justice until justice starts to get turned on us. Right, the, quick, you know, the students, of course, backed off, uh, and they, they took the mercy that was granted to them on the first paper, and they took their grade on the third, uh, and it came as a shock to them. And at times, we are outraged, aren't we? As Sproul even said, that we're outraged when deserved justice falls on us. Because we think mercy is the order of the day, and we have mercy, 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 and it will never come to account on us. The sad reality is that judgment and wrath are predominant topics in the scriptures. And we're only able to understand judgment when we understand the love of God. We've seen the greatness of Jesus. We've seen the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. And now it's in context of that in in those middle chapters of Hebrews that we get to this topic of judgment uh, this passage is an inescapable affirmation of the judgment, the judgment and the wrath of God. There's, it's inescapable if you're reading the scriptures. If you want to create a God that's not according to the scriptures, that one might be different. But if you're looking at the scriptures, who God reveals himself as, it's inescapable to look at judgment and wrath. And that's sobering and quite honestly we don't like to talk about it much our culture rejects it entirely many evangelical churches and evangelical christians in our country try to distance themselves from this notion because it makes god out to be harsh and vindictive we couldn't possibly talk about that but these are the claims of the scriptures Theologian uh, N.T. Wright, he writes on this topic of judgment uh, and in how it's perceived so negatively at times. He says this, he says, we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, or yearned over, he goes on. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. He goes on, Faced with a world world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of justice they a God of judgment. that the scriptures actually anticipate with hope the judgment of God. Psalm 96, you've probably sung this song if you've been in church uh, kind of over, for the last 30 years. This is one of those praise Maranatha hymns. Uh, Psalm 96, verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult. And everything in it, then shall the trees of the forest, or the trees of the field, will sing for joy before the Lord. Why? For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in his faithfulness. What's the context of the trees of the field will clap their hands? Is the judgment of God. That is not how modern American Christianity looks at the judgment of God. We think it's something to avoid, but the scriptures are saying saying that it points to uh, God coming, and it's something to actually look forward to because injustice finally meets its ultimate end. What is wrong in this world, the people that are oppressed and feeling that finally are vindicated. And so when we start to unpack the justice of God, we get back to this passage of Hebrews. What leads to God's judgment? What leads to his judgment is us trampling the gospel. It's the trampling of the gospel that brings God's judgment uh, to bear. And the first aspect of that is this sinful pattern that we see. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but rather a fearful expectation of judgment. Deliberately keep on sinning, okay? It's basically this, this word, uh, that, that deliberately word, is to do something without being compelled to do it, like no compulsion, you know, so... If you're getting, ooh, that hurt. If you're getting pushed by someone, right? You're being kind of, there's a compulsion behind you. This word has none of that. It's, it's not that you're being pushed to it. You are gladly walking in that direction. Deliberately keeping on and continuing on in your sin. Uh, th- this word ref- ref- refers at, uh, in other writings, not the scriptures, but in other writings, to those who volunteer. So those who volunteer, like, ooh, ooh, pick me. Those who volunteer to continue in their sin without being pulled there, flagrantly pursuing a lifestyle of sin, they volunteer for sin, and as a result, they volunteer for judgment. This phrase is not speaking to believers who struggle with sin, so if you're in the battle and you're asking God to, uh, to help you, to, uh, to, to free you of those besetting sins that you seem to just never can get out of, uh, that's not what this is speaking to. This is speaking to the one who flagrantly continues in his or her sin. I can do what I want and they reject God's authority because that doesn't fit what they want to do. But here's what's interesting. What is the actual sin that they continue in? It's not stated. It's not stated. It's not just the big stuff. Because in context, what is the sin that is talked about? It doesn't talk about a specific behavior. It talks about another category altogether. And so the true nature of sin is that sin is much deeper than sinful acts or behavior. Sin uh, is uh, truly what verse 29 points to. What is verse 29? Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Oops, I just read 28. (laughs) How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who trampled underfoot the Son of God? and profaned the blood of the covenant. So don't miss this. What's the true nature of sin is not just breaking rules or doing things that are you shouldn't be doing. There's definitely that. There, there's actions that are against the law and the will of God, most definitely. But the true nature of sin is that while we choose to sin, we are trampling under our feet the Son of God. We are taking the blood that he shed on the cross and we're saying, you know what? I would rather volunteer to do my own thing rather than surrender to him. The true nature of sin is, is that. Not just acting badly. It is uh, what is uh, here uh, basically treating as, as unholy the blood of the covenant. Um, did you see that? Uh, profaned the blood of the covenant. Um, by which he was sac- sacrificed. It's basically to treat something that ought to be honored and held up, treating it as common and ordinary and something that could just be discarded. <laughs> Piper, when he was commenting on this, this phrase, John, John Piper says, it, it's the guy who drank the cup of the new covenant and then said, huh, nice juice, and then went away to sin. It's treating flippantly the things of God, and it's an insult or a profaning or an outrage to the spirit of grace. One who hears the word of truth and discards it. Here's the sobering question. Is that you and is that me? Is that, is that, it's a unique struggle for kids that have grown, or grown up in the church. Because who's he writing to? He's writing to the people that are in the church. Those who have heard the word of truth and then deliberately go on and continue in their sin. And that's what brings on the judgment of God. So Colin Smith uh, actually recounting, uh, he was writing on the idea of judgment and recounting what his middle school youth pastor taught him one day on the idea of judgment. It was very similar to what we just talked about with the kids in the children's sermon. You know, people in, in their objection to the judgment of God, okay, they, they would say, well, wait a minute, how can any sin deserve everlasting destruction? You know, if God is just, how can he punish like that? And he goes on, he's, and to quote his middle school youth pastor, or a friend of his, he says, suppose a middle school student uh, punches another student in class. What happens? Well, that student is given a detention. Then suppose, during that detention, the boy punches the teacher who is over, to the, over that detention class. What happens? Well, the student then gets suspended from school. Well, suppose on the way home, that same boy punches a policeman uh, a policeman in the nose. What happens then? Well, he finds himself put in jail. And then suppose some years later that the very same boy in a crowd waiting to see the President of the United States, as the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the President. What happens then? He's shot dead by the Secret Service. Same exact sin. Same exact act. But what makes sin sin and what makes things have their grave and fullness is to uh, basically, uh, who against? Who are those sins and the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. It's one thing, a student, a teacher, a policeman, the president, there are grave circumstances. uh, And when we... Uh, when we volunteer and we deliberately go on sinning in the face of the truth of God, who are we, in a sense, punching in the face? It's not the president. It's the living God. And so, as much as we try to devalue all of these things, as much as we want to say God is love and all that, uh, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, Verse 31, the, the last part, uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's speaking to his church. He's speaking to people that show up on Sunday morning. And it's, a, it's an, uh, those who, who have uh, a unique uh, issue uh, of hearing the word and falling away. It's a sobering truth for any of us that have been around the church uh, at all, so okay. Let's, so we're going to set that. That's pretty. That's pretty stark news. But this is not the end. Okay. What awaits those who trample the gospel? We're going to press into it a little bit before we uh, we get there. What awaits those is the wrath of the living God. That is really sobering. We've read verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine. That the idea of breaking the law of Moses in twenty-eight leads to death. Uh, how much more severely, in verse 29, if we break and trample underfoot the Son of God, it, what could possibly be worse than death? But how much more severely could it be that God's punishment and in his, in his, uh, his judgment for sin is worse than that? Verse 27, it speaks to, uh, But a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, in verse 31, it's a fearful thing or a dreadful thing to fall under the judgment of God. And why would that fall to us is verse 26. When, when those who have heard the word of truth, received it even, uh, and then continually, deliberately volunteer to go on sinning, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. There's nothing left. They rejected the highest and the best sacrifice. There's nothing left to be sacrificed. There's nothing left to be done. That is sobering. That, that we volunteer to go under the wrath of God. And what's wild is how it's phrased. Look at verse 27. It is called the fearful expectation of judgment. The anticipation of judgment. You know, it's kind of like your kids when they get in trouble and they know they're going to get something, you know, maybe in the days when uh, it was either a spanking or some kind of consequence. It was like the anticipation of it was far worse than the actual punishment itself. And they would like fret about it. And I was a big softy and, you know, that is not going to be the case. Falling into the hands of a holy and righteous God. It will be sobering. And the, uh, and the anticipation of that ought to shake us to the core. Because it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Meaning, fall into the judgment of the living God. Meaning that he is the ever-living God. His judgment will live on with him. Where in the world is the hope in that? Where is the hope for us as his people? Uh, so one author said that, that it's in that Christ is the judge. That it's not just that, all right, we deserve judgment and we get off the hook. The one who's going to judge us is the one who loves us. And so uh, that, that ultimately we see where is, where is hope found is that, uh, that God's wrath falls on his son. That's the real hope for us. It's not that you shape up and I shape up and we get out from under the judgment of God. It, it, it's found in that is God's wrath is on his son. God's wrath falls there. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and Jesus would agree with that because he endured it. He fell into the, into the hands of the judgment of the living God. Okay, in, in, uh, in Luke 22, that fearful expectation of the wrath of God, Jesus lives it. Verse, uh, verse 42 of Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Two verses later in verse 44, And being in anguish, he, Jesus, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Why? Because Jesus was volunteering for the judgment of God. The judgment of God that that we deserve, he was the one who was volunteering to endure. And there was a fearful expectation that the Son of God felt falling under the wrath of the living God. God's not cruel in his judgment because God himself bore the wrath of God. One writer would say it this way. One writer would say that it is God himself who is the one uh, who endures all things. At the cross, neither sin nor judgment was diminished. Did you get that? Neither sin nor judgment at the cross was diminished. These things were all, uh, sin is heinous and judgment was dreadful and all of them show up at the cross, this is a call to repentance. This is a call for God's people to repent. Because flip down uh, to um, verse verse thirty-seven and thirty-eight. It's not on the screen, but in verse thirty-seven and thirty-eight, it says for a little while, for yet a little while, in coming, and uh, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The righteous will live by faith. It's a quote of the Old Testament scriptures. It's in Romans 1. It's in Galatians 3. And what's wild is the word order. The word order in Greek is not the righteous shall live by faith. Now, word order in Greek is interesting because it doesn't mean a whole lot. um, Because it's all about context. But if you're going to translate this literally, it is the righteous by faith will live. You can check it. It's the same in Romans 1. It's the same here. The righteous by faith will live. Now, uh, in Habakkuk 2, he's quoting, and and it is written, uh, the righteous shall live by faith, and that's why the historical translation has followed that. But the word order of the Greek is interesting. The righteous by faith, will live. And so here's the thing, you might be sitting here and saying, you know what, my life deserves the judgment and the wrath of God. Stack it up against the law of God, there's no question. I don't just break the law of Moses, I trample underfoot uh, Jesus on a daily basis. There's no question what I deserve. But here's the thing, how does God call any of us righteous? is because the, the, the one who has died in our place, Jesus, we have placed our faith in, and he is the one who makes us righteous. We get his perfect record. We get his blood paying for our sin. And so if you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what? I know that I am categorized by just volunteering to go my own way. God is calling you to faith right now. That you might receive the death of Jesus for your sin and you might receive the righteousness of Jesus that you stand righteous in God's sight. That the judgment of of God that you deserve falls on Jesus and you get the blessing and the hope of God. Because what ultimately comes out of that but we're going to do both of these at the same time, is the endurance for us in the midst of suffering and also the faith in our waiting. Look at verse 32 to 36 because, all right, so that's the warning. The warning is uh, to not go on deliberately sinning after we receive the word of truth, but what is ultimately, where is he driving, is verse 32 that this would call us and actually have us live in endurance. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you had... You yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have the need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's writing to people who are bearing up under intense persecution. And they're, ri- and they're bearing up under this persecution. And the propensity when we face great suffering is to give up. And God is saying, don't give up. Keep holding on. Keep holding on to your confidence. Keep enduring. Rather than trampling underfoot the Son of God, the blood of the covenant coming to you and you just discard it. Continue to hold to it. It is your hope. It is your future. Verse 39, don't shrink back and be one that is destroyed, but those who have faith and persevere uh, and their souls uh, uh, persevere. It is the, the hope for God's people is found in our endurance and our confidence in the Son of God. But the propensity is for us to kind of walk away and, and just go and volunteer and do our own thing. So what are you, where are you living now? Are you living in the, in the active place of volunteering for judgment Going your own way, deliberately going on sin and wanting to do your thing? Or are you surrendered to the mercy and the grace of God? Judgment is real. It's inescapable from the scriptures. And that's why Jesus went to the cross, so that he would bear up under the judgment and wrath of God. Do you know him today? Let's pray. God, I I pray that you would... um, That you would draw us uh, out of complacent patterns. Father, especially those who have been in church for years. Father, are we ones that have truly surrendered our lives to you? Truly come to you by faith and that we trust in Christ alone. That he bore up under the wrath of God. He gives us his righteousness. We trust in him. Or God, are we living how we want to live? And in a sense trampling under our feet the word of God and Jesus. Father, show us where we are. I pray, God, that we would not leave complacent people, but, God, that we would come to you and that we would understand your grace, that we would understand the great promises that have been given us. God, that you, because of of us receiving by faith, you give us uh, your gospel and you give us your goodness. Uh, Father, I pray that that would abound this morning in our hearts, the hope That comes from that. Yet, Father, help us not forget the sober warning that the writer of Hebrews gives us. Holy Spirit, would you convict us where we need it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.